0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: From Hebrews chapter 1. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Bear with me. Father, we, as we just sung, we are flowers quickly fading. And we live in a world that also is fading. Graciously, you have told us so. This world that we inhabit is so massive, it seems that it could never end, that it could never pass away, but you have told us it will be rolled up like a robe. like the clothing that we wad up into a ball and throw into the hamper. You will take it, you will roll it, you will cleanse it, and you will stretch it out all new. Everything changed. You have told us that, Lord, that we might be wise. We might understand something about what you are up to and about the place where we live and what our future holds. And so I pray Spirit of God, would you teach this to us this morning? Not just in our heads, we already know it in our heads. Would you teach it to us in a way that pierces and rests deep inside and causes something to be planted that grows and produces a different life in us? Produces a different church here? Help us with that. Everything around us screams out contrary to this. Day after day, the world goes on the same all around us. Occasionally it's interrupted by something unusual, but it's mostly the same. And we are easily convinced, God, we are easily convinced that this is all there is and it will never go away. And especially those of us who are young, we think we'll never die. And it isn't true. And I pray Convince us otherwise and produce a change in us, Lord, that matters for your kingdom's sake and matters for eternity. Would you do that this morning from this passage in 1 Corinthians 7, from the, the words that you give me? Would you correct them and would you use them in, in particular ways and particular people here that you would grow us all collectively? I ask you to do that, God. It graciously told us something, and now I pray graciously teach it to us that it would strike us and would change us, that we would be different, that you would be honored. So do that this morning, Father, Son, and Spirit, I ask you, and I pray it in Christ's name, which means I pray it by what he has accomplished and in line with what he wants. In Christ's name, amen. Earlier this month, the world was supposed to have ended. Maybe you saw it on the news or on a billboard or read about it in the paper somewhere. Religious people who claim to be Christians claiming the Bible told them that at such and such an hour on such and such a day, it was all going to be over. This despite the fact that Jesus Himself told us that no man knows the hour of the day. Nonetheless, some people claimed to know and some responded in extreme ways, quitting jobs, divesting themselves of all their possessions. I, I read it in the paper about a man who lives out east and, and he just stopped going to work and drove his family clear across the country so that he could be in California in time. And they asked him why, and he said, I'm not going to get paid next week anyway. Why bother working? That was his thought. And obviously, there are a whole bunch of problems there. A whole collection of problems in that group of people, believing and then living as though the world were passing away tomorrow. A lot of problems. Different than the ones that most of us face, who believe and then live as though the world is never passing away. Not tomorrow at 6, not next week, not ever. I know that if if I actually ask you to write down a piece of paper, if you ask me to write down a piece of paper, what do you believe about the future? What do you believe the Bible teaches? We would all write that that the Lord's going to come back, the world's going to end, he's going to make it all new. Yes, yes, yes. The problem is that so often, if you look at our lives, there's no evidence that we actually believe that. They've driven off into one ditch on one side. 6 p.m. tomorrow, get ready. And a lot of us, a lot of times, are mired in the other ditch. Ready for what? Life's just moving on like normal. And in reality, the Bible calls us to somewhere in between, to live with a foot kind of on either side, to hold these two things in tension, letting them temper each other. There is an end coming soon, but right now we have to live as life goes on. Both of those things kind of held in tension is what the Bible challenges us to, calls us to, expects of us. What we're going to look at today in 1 Corinthians 7. We're in the middle of the chapter. Last week we saw Paul repeatedly calling Christians to remain in the life condition that God had assigned to them. He, he assigns conditions in life places, standing, status, whatever word you want to use there. He he signs things to us and calls us to them. And Paul says, wherever that is, there you are, walk right there with him. Walk with him there. Which, of course, does not mean that no change is ever allowed, even that the passage itself allowed for change. He doesn't mean no change. He means it's, it's speaking contrary to the idea that I have to change and have to go somewhere else, and then I can know the goodness of God. And then I can know the blessing of God. Only there, not here. That's, what, that's the idea of being attacked. It's the idea that is kind of standing behind what he has said up to this point about marriage and singleness. And it's behind where he goes in the rest of this chapter as he says more about marriage and singleness. He's coming back to that subject. He spoke generically last week because obviously it has a wider impact than just marriage. But he's going back towards marriage and singleness. And so we're going to follow him back there. Verse 25 and following. But this morning, I'm going to read just 25 to 31, because the whole rest of the chapter, 25 all the way through the end of the the chapter, kind of unpacks one great big argument with a number of different supporting points. And I'm going to just focus our attention this morning on one of the supporting points, particularly verses 29, 30, and 31. So I'm going to read to give us the context, but just kind of zero in on on those three points, one of the supporting points, that that we'll see how how he uses that to weave into the rest of the argument next week. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 7, I'm going to begin in 25, and read down to the end of verse 31. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord... will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Let's stop there. Verse 25 begins with that phrase, Now concerning, indicating that he's addressing another issue raised in the letter that the Corinthians had written to him. And depending how your translation puts it, the the issue is, is either that of the betrothed, the question about the betrothed, or literally the word is virgins, meaning young women of marrying age who are not yet married. And as the rest of the context reveals, he's got a particular kind of young woman of marrying age in mind, one who is not yet married but is engaged, which is why they use the word betrothed. So now, addressing the betrothed, there's an issue here. And now just guess what the issue is. Paul just said, remain as you are. What's an engaged person supposed to do with that? It's like you're in the middle of a walk and you have a foot up and he says stop. Am I supposed to go back or go forward? Or do I just hang out here in limbo Forever. I'm not exactly married and I'm not exactly single. What am I supposed to do here? So he says in verse 25, there's no direct command from the Lord on this issue. Meaning the same thing that he said back in 10 and 12, that Jesus himself has not spoken on this particular issue, but Paul's is going to give us the word of the Lord here. Paul, the inspired writer of Scripture, is going to say something. So when he says, but I'll give you my judgment or my opinion, we are not to think of it as some guy's thought. That's what he thinks. This is the word of the Lord from God through Paul to us. But it's a little different than some of the other things that have been said in this chapter so far. He says, I am one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Literally, it's true. One by the Lord's mercy. Not, interestingly, not by the Lord's authority. Not by the Lord's inspiration. Not by the Lord's command. By the Lord's mercy. He's made me, as I speak to you, trustworthy by His mercy. Indicating that what's going to come out of my mouth is mercy-oriented. Mercy-driven. Which explains a little bit why there's a lack of command in these verses. Which is noteworthy, because up to this point, the chapter's been full of command, three of them last week. Now, there is a command here, but it's just a repeat of what he's already said. The new material here is not command. It's the word of the Lord, but not command-oriented, which means that what we have here is wisdom. We have God in mercy speaking through his apostle to us, telling you, here's some things to think about. And you would be wise to take them in and chew on them, let them ruminate and then influence. How exactly? You're going to have to make a judgment call. There is no command. So, he's going to speak essentially wise pastoral counsel that is informed by biblical truth, But at the end of the day, sees both marrying and remaining single, both as permissible before the Lord. Which is what he says in verse 28. After reiterating his prior teaching about remaining as you are, those are the commands that are just repeats of what he just said. Don't break away from a spouse. Don't go find a spouse. Remain as you are. But if you marry, that's not a sin. It's okay. I just want to bring up some things for you to think about in light of this present distress, probably meaning the turmoil in the church, as the as church in Corinth is dealing with the hostile world around it and then all of the turmoil that we've seen here in this book so far, the church is, is a cauldron boiling, and he says you don't really need to introduce another complication, marriage. This is perhaps odd. We view marriage as all wonderful and great. I mean, we're going to have a wedding later today, Last night we had a rehearsal. It's, it's a great big party. It's all good. It's, what do you mean it's trouble? He says, you're going to have worldly trouble? Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you think about it for a second, of course you're going to have worldly trouble. Of course. Yes, marriage. Marriage is wonderful, and it is trouble. It is a relief, and it is a complication. Isn't it? And I would spare you that, especially given the situation that you're in right now. But it's not a sin if you do marry. I just want you to to think about some things. Let me put something out here. There are other factors that you should consider. And if you consider them, perhaps you would decide not to be married. Or perhaps you would be married in a different way for different reasons on a different foundation. Here's what I mean. Which brings them to the verses that we're going to focus on this morning. 29, 30, and 31, which obviously come up in the context of marriage, so that's kind of what he has on on his mind, but it immediately goes much bigger than just marital status. So we're going to look at it this morning in in the bigger sense, not just about marriage. It spreads across life. 29, 30, and 31. I'm going to make two observations from these verses. And here's the first one. God's appointed time for this world is coming to a close and will one day end. God's appointed time for this world, it's coming to a close and it will one day end. This is the beginning and the concluding statements of this section, 29, 30, 31. Verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. Or if you have the NAS, the New American Standard, does a very good job of of catching the grammar there. It has been shortened. Now the idea of shortening, to to tighten something up, to, to gather it together like... Like furling a sail. You have a sailboat with a great big sail that would hang. And when it's furled, it's gathered up. That's the idea here. Time has been gathered up. And grammatically, it has been done. It's been done already. It's been gathered up, shortened. And not just time in general. 60 seconds is still 60 seconds. A minute still has 60 seconds in it. You know, it, not literal time like that. This is figurative time. A bit like we might say, in the time of Abraham Lincoln, we don't mean the minutes and seconds of his life. We mean the period, his era. And it's a time, if you know anything about American history, I say that and stuff comes to your mind. Oh, that's the Civil War. Oh, yeah. You're thinking about things in the time of Abraham Lincoln. This is God's time. God's Appointed time. A time when he has something going on that he's working towards his purposes and is colored by particular events. It's not just the passage of the tick, 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 tick. God's appointed time. The time that God has set in which he works in this world to accomplish his purposes it has a beginning and it has an end. The time in this world it has a beginning. There's a creation. There is a chapter three, fall. There is a chapter three and a half and four, first seeds of redemption. And it's tracked throughout the Bible, God's time, what God is doing as he's moving towards an end. Another way to express this would be God's redemptive history. It's tracking. It's moving along. There are things foretold. God would act. He would act in this people, in this place. He would send, particularly, a Messiah. That'd be a key figure. He's coming. Foretold, always. And then God shortened the time. When did that happen? When He sent Him. Galatians 4 talks about in the fullness of time. At just the right moment in this plan, right there, God sent this Redeemer. And when he did that, it's as if he grabbed the hands of of the clock of redemptive time and moved them dramatically. He initiated the final stage. He moved us into, if you will, stoppage time. Do you know stoppage time? I'm not a soccer aficionado, but as I understand it, stoppage time is that time period after the game supposed to be over. But is not yet? It's in soccer. it collects all the time throughout the match in which somebody's been injured or I, I suppose the ball's been placed here or there for a penalty or something, and, and the referee's keeping track. And after the 90 minutes of regulation ends... There's a period of time, and the game's still going on. Anything that happens still counts. And you don't know how long that's going to be. You know the game's not going to be shorter than 90 minutes, but it will be longer to some extent. You know that after the 90, at 89, you don't know. Do we have one more minute left, or three, or four, or five, or two and a half? You don't know. Now, I later realized that they actually hold up a sign that says how many minutes. <laughs> but they don't tell you how many seconds, I don't think. <laughs> so you don't know three and 38 seconds, three and 28 seconds. The referee knows he's got to watch. And at some point, the ball's flying around the field, players are running, and he blows the whistle, and it's over. It's over. God has, when He sent Christ, moved us into stoppage time. And how long is it running? I don't know. All we know, to switch metaphors, He's taken an hourglass, has turned it over, the sand is running, and He put a cloak over it. How much longer? I don't know. But I know the sand is running. I know the clock is ticking. The very end of this section, verse 31. The present form of this world is passing away. Not will. Right now. Is. Tick, 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 tick. It is. The sand is running. It's passing. The present form of this world, meaning certainly the physical form of this world. The world itself is decaying. Our bodies are decaying. But more than that, more than the form of the world in a physical sense, the form of the world in the sense of how this place works. The world. What it values, what it's oriented about, what we live for, what what measures success and failure. It's passing away. Right as we speak. How much longer? I don't know. I don't know. You must see this, because what I'm, I'm saying here, if you're a Christian, what I'm saying here is not at all new to you. I certainly hope not. But the problem is it this does not mark our lives. We assume next year, take it for granted that 10 years from now I'm going to, have to be paying college tuition. Maybe. Maybe the whistle will blow. I don't know. Based on what? I don't know. It never enters our minds. Very rarely enters our minds. We're living on borrowed time with borrowed lives. You must see this. This world is passing away at this very moment. And he has shortened the time. For two different groups of us, this has an important impact. If you are not a Christian, everything is on the line right now. Certainly there are some here who are not Christians. I I don't know who exactly all that is. But I plead with you. You're living on borrowed time in a borrowed world and there will be an end. May God give sight to see that. He has told us this not as a threat, but as a gracious, merciful warning. Knowing that the world is ending. And as the Bible says, when the world ends, Christ will come and will judge the living and the dead. Every single one of us. Judge us, not by comparison to one another, but judge us by comparison to God's holy standard. His law. Summed up by Jesus when He said, What God requires is that you love the Lord God with all of your being. And your neighbor is yourself. Total, full, complete love of God above everything else always is the standard. That then affects the rest of my life, and every single one of us would fall at that judgment. If it were to happen right now, guilty would be read over every single one of us in and of ourselves. And God knows that and mercifully has provided a solution. That's what the the, the turning of the hands was, the sending of the Messiah. He sent Jesus to deal with, to address this very problem in your life in light of the fact that the end is coming and judgment for you is coming. And he pleads with you now, embrace Jesus. Embrace Jesus dying on a cross to remove off of you the wrath of God. There is great hope in that. There is only one hope, though. That. It's a great hope. It's the only hope. And for those of us here who are Christians, do you think about this? Not occasionally when somebody brings it up, but do you think about this in and throughout your day? There should be a great encouragement and a great correction that this would generate in you. A great encouragement in that we are so often burdened by the sorrows of this world and the encouragement would be they are passing. It is passing and He is coming. You should take heart in that. And the correction would be does this mark your life, how you invest your resources, what you do with your time, how you speak to other people, the goals towards which you live It's so very hard i 've been thinking about this this week, I'm getting ready to preach this and thinking about it, and it is there is an odd mental battle that 's the best way I can describe it that goes on if you walk out and you look out there and you think. This all rolled up like a garment? Really? I can't even imagine that. And I've seen movies that attempt to depict it, but I can't even imagine that. But it is coming. Brothers and sisters, it is coming. It tells us all over the place. It has always been a part of the plan. This place is not itself in this way eternal. He'll make it new. But this place is passing. Which place are you living for? This one that's passing or the one that's coming? Ask yourself, What shapes your investments of time and resources? What determines your your sorrows and your joys? This life or the next? Ask yourself. And carry that as we move into the next observation. The second point. Live in the world as though the world actually is passing away. I'm going to say that sentence again. making, Emphasizing two different parts of it that are going to kind of be where I go with it. Live in the world as though the world actually is passing away. There's two things there. There's a, there's a what and, and a how. What we, what are we to do? Live in the world. Here we are. Remain here. Live here with God. Live in the world. How? As if it's passing. Because it is. We just saw that the problem is that it doesn't, doesn't often mark our lives, but the text expects that it would. Look at verse 29 again. Time has been shortened. And he says, So from now on, in other words, the shortening of time is supposed to matter from now on, wants us to live a certain way. Let those who have wives, and I think to make it flow, he has skipped the opposite expression, but it means that as well, those who have husbands, those who have spouses, we could say. Those who have wives live as if they had none. Those who mourn, as though not mourning. Who rejoice, as though not rejoicing. Who buy, as though not owning anything. Who interact with the world, as though not interacting with the world. How that is set up, the structure there holds both of these what and hows. The what. The first half of that, you have a wife, you mourn, you sorrow, you buy, you interact. This side is assumed and appropriate. It's appropriate. He says twice in this section, if you have a wife, that's good and fine and right. And it would be sin to pretend that you don't have a wife, actually. He said earlier in the chapter, you can't have a wife or a husband and and deny them their rights as if you're single. You're not. He doesn't mean this in a literal tight sense, pretend... It's appropriate to have a wife. It's appropriate to mourn, to sorrow, to buy. And every single one of them, as though there's an attitude with which we undertake these things in life. What and how. So let's take one of them and unpack it a little bit. The buying one, the commerce, in verse 30. He's talking to the church in all of this, saying... Those of you who buy things, and you will, you will go into the store, you will put down money, and you will acquire something that now the store owner believes you have the right to carry out. And that now your neighbor knows he can't steal from you. You will own it. You bought it, it's yours in the eyes of society. But buy it, as though you don't own it. There's a perspective there. Something that's not literally true, but I need to think of it as if it is, though it isn't, but think of it as if it is. I rented a car a a few weeks ago. Nice, very new, very comfortable, very smooth. It was the same make as the the car I, I do own. It's about... 20 years, 15, 18 years newer. It was marvelous. But it didn't give me that, oh, I have a new car feeling. And I was not sorry when I gave it back because I knew it was only mine for three days. And they were going to clean it and give it to somebody else. Buy a car like that. As though it's not yours. Hold it very loosely is the point. You have to buy it. You have to live in the world. You will live in the world holding it very loosely. You have to interact with the world very loosely. You have to mourn and to rejoice and to marry. Let me say this, I'm going to say this twice because I. I want to say this very carefully. You engage in all of those activities, and of course the list is not exhaustive, although when you get interacting with the world, it becomes pretty close. Engage in in that side, that set of activities, I'm going to say it like this, refusing to allow them to become the source from which you draw life, for which you live life, By which the course of your life is determined. I'll say that again. Refusing to allow them to become the source from which you draw life, for which you live life, by which the course of your life is determined. So you marry. You have a spouse, and you engage with that spouse refusing to allow that spouse to become the source from which you draw life, for which you live life, which directs the course of your life, because there is something far greater than a spouse that is to be all of those things. God Himself and His kingdom. You mourn here. We mourn at loss. You go to a funeral and you mourn. That is appropriate. But whatever was lost cannot be allowed to be the thing for which you live, from which you draw life, which directs the course of your life, because there's something far more important than whatever was lost. God and His kingdom. You rejoice. Something great happens. You graduate. You get married. You get get a job. Wonderful. Do not let that become that from which you draw life, that for which you live, which determines what you do, who you are. You do those things, engage in those things as though, because in fact, the world is passing away. And woe is the man or woman who lives totally wrapped up in these things that, like sand, run through your fingers and they're gone. In a moment, they vanished. And what do you have? Nothing. Live here as though this is passing away and something else is coming. Because it is. Which means a couple of things for us. The what and the how again are here, and, and they're tempered by each other. You, they're, they're held in tension by one another. And, and I thought about I, I mean I wrote out a, a bunch of ways to express this, and, and I think at the end of the day, I just want to say, please let me talk to you. Because we have to live here for something or another. You're going to go out this afternoon and spend time and spend money. On something or another. Don't withdraw from the world and cash it all in and assume 6 p.m. tomorrow because it may not come. Engage and engage wisely. Realize that there are people who live next door to you and occupy the next cubicle and maybe sleep just down the hall from you with whom you need to interact. Engage with them. Live in this world. Do not let us become a people. You do not individually become a person who withdraws from society and from everybody else and just wants to live in in some sort of a holy huddle, working on becoming more Christ-like yourself, waiting for Him to come. He has you here for a reason, to walk with Him in this world. Last week. Remain with Him here. By virtue of the fact that you're still here, He wants you here. By virtue of the fact that you know so-and-so and so-and-so, he wants you to know so-and-so and so-and-so. Engage with them. Live. Everything you you touch and interact with. C.S. Lewis said this so well. There are no finite people. Lewis, and I won't be able to quote it, I don't remember it all, but The woman that you bump into at the cash register at the grocery store and the person that you snub in traffic, this is a loose paraphrase, are all eternal beings. And this world in which you and they live and the things done to you by them are all passing away and there is a coming reality. Live here now with that person and that reality in mind. Whoever that person is. Live here for the sake of this kingdom and this king who is coming. For his glory. For him to be known here and everywhere. How does that happen? I mean, that—that—that's the call, and, and I would imagine that I haven't been the first person to say that to you. How does that happen? Well, there's got to be something in here that gets changed, and part of the change is—is is God mercifully telling us, "Listen to me, children, sons, daughters. Listen to me," He says. The present form of this world is passing away. It is. I have shortened the time. I'm standing there with a whistle and a clock or a trumpet perhaps. And it will end. And you can right now live to invest this that you have for that. It'll be an awesome thing, I'm telling you now, for your good. Part of it is that right here and part of it is A determining something about the character of God from the fact that He's told us these things. Oh, that means you are good. If you would tell me something for my good in mercy, that must mean that you are good and merciful. And that a life lived fastened to you is not going to be found in the end to be a life lost. When I could have had all the stuff in the world... You won't find that. You won't find that loss. Give it up. I mean, sometimes I mean your money, your time. I mean it bigger than that. Just give it up. There's a mindset that has to change, a heart that has to change. That comes ultimately from seeing That this is passing away and something else is coming and someone else is coming who is fabulously, marvelously, amazingly good. And the kingdom of God becomes the kingdom of men. When that place fully invades and this place fully passes... There at that time you will know joy. Investing in that is worth your all. And here's the wisdom piece of that. How? I, I don't know. Maybe that means you want to get married. Maybe it means you don't. And on and on and on. He introduces this as a piece of wisdom in a larger argument and at the end leaves both choices open to them. Maybe that means you buy a brand new 2012 whatever whenever they come out. Or maybe as you think it through you say, "Mm, the 2010 is just fine. I don't know. The Bible does not say it just pleads with you to realize this is passing. And maybe that means that you should think, I don't need wood trim inside my car. Who ever thought of that? Maybe you do some for some reason. I don't know. Maybe you you need that TV or or you don't. Maybe you need that private time by yourself or or, or maybe your neighbor does. Needs your time. I, I don't know. I don't know. But this, I do know. Brothers, sisters, the appointed time has been shortened. And from now on, let those who have spouses live as though they don't, not deriving life from, not living ultimately for. And those who mourn as though not, and those who rejoice as though not, and those who buy as though they have none, and those who deal with the world as if they aren't. Because this world in its present form is passing away. Let me pray. God, I pray give us wisdom. And give us the wisdom to weigh the wisdom that You have given us in Your Word. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here as they weigh out life That they would know your mercy that allows for either. But perhaps would incline them towards one or the other in light of the future. I I don't know. I pray graciously guide and teach individual people here now. Later this afternoon, tomorrow as they face choices. And Father, I pray for those here who don't know you and I ask you to draw them to alarm them with the coming end in judgment, and then to ease their alarm with your grace, available at the cross for those who come and believe. So speak now to your people, I pray, Lord. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.